0: and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast which hits rewind and sometimes fast forward on the music and scenes we've loved. I'm Sarah-Jane Kemp and this my co-host is Rick Martin. Hi Rick, how are you?
1: Yeah, really good Sarah.
0: Good, good. Um, I know this is an episode that you're so excited about and, and for good reason. Um, should we just cut to the chase and uh, go straight into it?
1: Yeah, let's have no preamble this week about what we've been cooking and the other albums we've been listening to. I mean, I love doing that on other episodes, but on this one, I kind of want to cut straight to the chase. And yeah, a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about 2001, you know, we had Turing breaks on as a guest and we're talking about what the music scene was like back then. And you kind of fell down a bit of a rabbit hole of listening to 2001 music and uh, Janet Jackson and stuff like that. And um, we kind of teased at the end of the episode, didn't we, that we... Had, we were working on a, an episode about another band from 2001 but we didn't want to curse it until we had the uh interview in the can which we have now and that band is the uh the strokes and we've got an interview with the man who produced their debut ep the modern age their debut album is this it amongst many other great records mr gordon Raphael, a little later on in the show now we love to hook these shows on kind of anniversaries or kind of have some sort of news hook and yeah the modern age ep you know the record that started it all for the strokes was their kind of debut ep and sparked the bidding war that got them signed that then led to the release of is this it turned 20 years old yesterday we're recording this on a uh, on a saturday and uh, yeah, it turned 20 yesterday and it was kind of a launch pad not just for the the band in new york but kind of rock and roll in the indie scene of, of kind of the last 20 years so really excited about this episode you're right sarah
0: yeah and it's, it's a good one because i think it's a it's definitely one for the more well, I don't, I'm i going to use the word nerdy, um, and I hope you don't mind that, Rick. But um, one for the kind of more nerdy Strokes fans out there, because it's very much talking about the music in a lot more detail than we've ever gone into on, on any episode before. Because um, it's kind of the first time we've had a producer on the show, isn't it? So, Rick, you definitely went over and above my expectations on what you're going to talk about in terms of the music. And at some points I'm thinking, Oh my God, actually Rick does know quite a bit about music, doesn't he? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it's definitely one for for someone who, who doesn't just want to kind of listen to kind of the culture and, and what it was around, what, what it was like back then, which you, you do get a sense of that as well. And Gordon himself is, is quite a unique character. It sounds like uh, I, I, I really loved listening to it, but anyway, yeah, we, we'll go into that in a bit.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it was a great chat, and we'll play it out a little bit later on, and I guess what I will say at this stage is, I guarantee Strokes fans will maybe get a little tip bit, a little bit of information about one of the songs they love, or some of them making the album that they didn't know before, but yeah, I guess before that, I thought we could kind of kick off, like, you know, why the strokes were so important to us. We said there, you know, they kind of kicked off kind of rock and roll, but, you know, me being me, I like I like kind of neat lists and, um, you know, things that come in tens and things like that. So I thought what we could do this episode, Sarah, is kind of what we consider the ten reasons why the Strokes have been so important to music and culture over the past twenty years. So, are you happy to to do that and to kind of fit in with my obsession with neatness and my obsession with putting things into sort of nice and neat lists?
0: Yeah, I think it is a nice, neat list, Rick, and I'm I'm ready for it. Let's go. Yes,
1: yeah, so I think number one, uh, they shook up the scene like like kind of nothing else, and I think. Um, you know, when we were chatting about this, when we are planning this episode, you know, you weren't really into kind of rock and roll at the time. I know you were more into kind of R&B and, and dance music and, you know, a few a few guitar bands as well, but maybe not the indie scene. Whereas I suppose I've been reading NME from sort of 99 onwards and, you know, I've been into kind of a lot of the Britpop stuff that came before that and some of the later Britpop stuff, um, you know, that kind of that dead period between the mid, mid-90s mid and the sort of early noughties. And um. There wasn't a lot going on, you know, certainly from kind of an enemy point of view, you know, there were no real stars in the enemy. It's still an interesting magazine to read, you know, one week you'd hear about a Miami music conference and the next it would be a retrospective on a Rolling Stones album or whatever. Or, you know, I remember they did an issue once that was about the riots in Bradford and why weed should be legalized. But, you know, what enemy became, I think, when The Strokes sort of arrived was it was the return of the rock stars. It was a return of, of almost like cartoon character. Sort of, um, sort of rock stars, and it really, really did kind of shake up the music scene, not just in New York, but kind of overall. Um, So, I guess you know, what what I'm interested to know from you, Sarah, is what did you think when you first heard the Strokes, kind of back in 2001?
0: I remember exactly where I was when I first heard the Strokes. So, MTV was always, my eyes were glued to the screen with MTV and the box that was around in those times, which was a 24-hour. Uh, music video channel which was just fantastic um have sleepovers and stay up all night watching the videos on repeat because <laughs> they used to repeat them uh, over and over again anyway um so yeah I remember vividly being in my living room and there, there'd been an interview with with Julian from The Strokes and they were playing the last night video um and as soon as it kind of as soon as it came on my ears pricked up and as you said I wasn't really it's was not that I wasn't into that kind of music I just really had I hadn't really been subjected to it I guess at that point and I just remember kind of him him acting really shy and coy and cool. I think that's a good word to use for him, cool, because he was just so nonchalant and I guess we talk well you talk to, to Gordon about that I guess in the interview don't you I'm not going to give any spoilers for that but he was talking about how you know there were the, the brand new band on the on the scene and he was talking about how he got got such bad stage fright that he used to vomit before the gigs and mm. for some reason that that interview has never left me because there was something about it that just kind of captivated me and I thought this is really cool
1: and is it fair to say The Strokes were a bit of what you'd call like a gateway drug into other <laughs> kind of rock and roll that came afterwards? I know you were you were a big Pete and kind of Libs and Baby Shambles fan, but also like a huge Franz Ferdinand fan. And Franz Ferdinand kind of came out in sort of 2004, The Libertines kind of emerged 2002. So was it a bit of a snowball effect from when The Strokes came out, do you think, for you?
0: Yeah, I think so. I, I think that there are differences, though, between how I perceive the Strokes to be and how I perceive bands like Franz Ferdinand and um, and the Libertines. The Strokes are just, I'm going to keep using this word, cool. They ooze it. They're just, you know, to me, they on the outset, effortless, just, you know, skulky, Uh, rock stars who who just look like they don't need to put any effort into what they're doing and they can just be like the coolest people on the planet whereas I think the Libertines and some some, like a band like Franz Ferdinand they have something different they they're a bit nerdy and a bit kind of geeky they're probably cool but in a different way they're not traditionally cool um but yeah I think they definitely were a a, a gateway into that right because everything exploded once they came onto the scene and and with Enemy, they they were on they were the NME's I guess like favorite you know favorite band weren't they so I think Mm, mm. from then people took more note in that kind of music so of course it was a gateway not just for me but for everyone I think
1: I think that was a symbiotic relationship actually there between Enemy and the band. In the Enemy needed some bands to write about, and I think the Strokes needed the press to kind of launch them into the stratosphere. And it's interesting, they were much bigger over here in the UK than they were back in the US. It's kind of a sort of common theme, actually. But um it's also interesting you say that they were cool and they look cool. And that was the first thing that struck you because, you know, thinking back to 2001, you know, I remember when the modern age came out, there was news in the Enemy of there being like a bidding war to sign them up for an album. And then when the album, you know, the album came out in August later that year, and we'll go into that in a bit more depth uh, in a second. But, you know, number two on the list for me is they released the definitive indie album of the decade, despite all the pressure of having to deliver on that that early promise. You know, is this it for me? Uh, It got 10 out of 10 in The Enemy, you know, whether you take sort of notice of that um, is is kind of up to you. But certainly, you know, that made me, Sit up and notice because they didn't give tens to many other albums. But what I've quite enjoyed this week in kind of the run up to this interview was, you know, I love the album back in the day, but I think I love it even more now listening to it 20 years on because it's absolutely flawless. You know, later in the interview with Gordon, we do kind of a track by track of how he made each song. And the reason I did that is for me, there's no filler. There's nothing that I would kind of, uh, I would sort of skip when I'm, I'm listening to it because from track one all the way up to the 11th track. It's, it's just brilliant. It's got a real kind of feel and sound to it that was so different to everything else at the time. The songwriting's brilliant. It's got songs with big choruses. It's got songs with uh, with great guitar solos. And um, yeah, I think for me, that was the definitive indie album of, of the decade, which is amazing to think when there was so much pressure on them to release that everyone was looking for that by the time it came out that August you know, and and, um, the modern age had come out in January, that was the expectation, everyone was kind of pinning their hopes of, God, I I hope this is as good as everyone, I hope this sounds as good as they look, I think was the overarching sort of theme.
0: Yeah, definitely, and uh, I I completely agree with that, and kind of going back again to the, the effortlessly cool thing that I was saying before, you know, when you used to see them kind of, I've got images of them kind of being stooped over and smoking a cigarette and um do you, do you know what i mean when i say that stoopy kind of look in fact one mm, of my friends mm. was nicknamed stoopy because she used to try sure. and replicate what they look like <laughs> she didn't smoke mm. but i think she probably pretended she smoked at one point just to you know with the leather she, she definitely had a fake leather jacket at that point i think she was about 17 and she used to kind of stoop over and do the stoopy stoopy dance as well <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the indie dance floor but let's, yeah i let, no.
1: let, let's let's be clear to listeners smoking isn't cool however it can look quite cool in photographs of <laughs> rock and roll stars, and I've always maintained that.
0: yeah, I mean, we're we're treading on murky waters here. I, I don't know if that's the right saying, but yeah, it of course it does. I mean, it goes hand in hand with rock stars, right?
1: I mean, speaking of their cool, I think number four on the list for me is, and this is this might sound like a fairly basic thing to say, but stop and think about it for a second. They had the five most spectacular names in indie history. And I'm just going to remind you of the names of the band members, right, Sarah. So you had, Julian Casablancas, that's your front man. I mean, that is a classic front man name. Casablancas, sounds like a film, right? Casablanca or whatever. Nicolai Frechior, the bassist, sounds a bit mysterious, sounds a bit foreign. Albert Hammond Jr., again, classic. name. I think his dad was called Albert Hammond and was a musician, so he'd kind of borrowed that name. But Albert Hammond, he couldn't be anything other than a rock and roll guitarist, could he? Fabrizio Moretti, sounds like an Italian footballer. No, he's the drummer in the uh, in The Strokes. And Nick Valency. again. Valency sounds like a model or something, doesn't it? I mean, this is not Dave D Dozy and Titch, is it? I mean, or Pete, Steve, and and John. These are just the coolest names you've ever heard a band have,
2: right?
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder: are they their real names? You know, I've never thought that before, but well, <laughs> <they are. laughs> hearing you say that, well, are they? <laughs> they might be able to change their names, but they probably haven't. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It just that just doesn't happen, does it? But my, what's your favourite name out of that lot?
1: uh that's a really good question i think it's fabrizio uh moretti just because again it sounds like a footballer or a beer or something you know
0: <laughs> mine's julian casablancas it sounds so just lovely
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 a close second for me it's a great front man's name it's even got like the right amount of letters i think you want a first name that's about six or seven letters and a surname that's about what ten nine or ten perfect um let's go into something with a bit more substance i suppose number five the list of reasons why i think the strokes were so important is without any strokes you don't have any libertines and what do i mean by that so do i mean that the libertines wouldn't have formed no sort of music historians will know the libertines and the strokes formed at roughly the same time in kind of the late 90s they weren't overnight successes either of them in fact the libertines took even longer to be a five-year kind of overnight success but what is sort of well-known, and we interviewed the Libertines band biographer Anthony Thornton back in uh, 2018, so if you haven't heard that episode, uh, well worth going back in the archive and having a listen, and he made that point that when The Strokes emerged in 2001, the Libertines, I think, looked at that and thought, and just kind of tweaked their sound a little bit, they tweaked the way they look, you know, out went kind of um, kind of more suits and that sort of thing that they're wearing on stage, and in came the leather jackets, you know, out went Some of their and some of that early libertines material, like the Legs 11 demo and stuff like that, where they had that 60 year old uh, drummer, Mr. Razcox, it's still pretty good stuff, but it's more kind of Beatles y 60s pop. Whereas when you know the 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 Strokes influence came in, much more punky, much more garage rock, much more raw. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important to know that if the Strokes didn't exist, you may never have seen the libertines because they may never have got signed. You know, I think that then there was that, there was kind of they were looking for a British Strokes. And there was your libertines that that were kind of ready and waiting. Can you imagine a music scene without the libertines, Sarah?
0: Well, no, because as we've talked about on previous episodes, they were the epicenter of the the music scene and the well, the indie scene really from you know the early 2000s for quite a long time and and if they hadn't existed loads of the other bands that we've interviewed on this podcast wouldn't have existed so it's kind of a bit of a domino effect isn't it
2: it's i
1: was going to say it's exactly that the do, the domino effect and that's actually a nice a nice the reverse segue. domino
0: effect sorry though because it's not they're falling down they're building up
1: oh very very good point but yeah a, a nice segue into point number six which is no strokes no arty monkeys because obviously arty monkeys were on domino Records. Um, And what do we mean by this? Well, I guess really no libertines possibly know Arctic Monkeys because they were big fans of the libertines But also I know that the Arctic Monkeys were big fans of the Strokes as well Like here's, here's a fun fact that you may not have known Sarah So when the Arctic Monkeys played their very first gig at the Grapes in Sheffield in 2003 They actually included a cover of a Strokes song in their set list. Did you know that? No,
0: I didn't actually know that
1: so there's a fun fact for you. And then more recently, obviously, on the first track of their last album, Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, on Start Treatment, Alex opens with the line, I just wanted to be one of the strokes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that's not making it... Um, not making it clear I I don't know what is and he's also sort of mentioned this in in interviews hasn't he I think he told NME something back in 2011 did you you read this the quote I think we've got the quote here haven't we? I did
0: I've got it I can read it out Um, so he said I remember I used to play that first album meaning is this it in college all the time when our band was first starting loads of people were into them so loads of bands coming out sounded like them I remember consciously trying not to sound like The Strokes, deliberately taking bits out of songs that sounded too much like them. But I still love the that album. That's interesting, right? Like I, Subconsciously, I guess, you, if you have musical certain musical influences, they're bound to make it into your songs. I think for them it was more about
1: that being inspired to pick up a guitar or to think that rock and roll was a career that you could take up as opposed to their songs sounding like The Strokes. Because, you know, there's there's not really much of a link between the two, other than that Alex used to sing with an American accent in some of the like early demos. you can never dig any of them out. But I don't think that's particularly Stroke's in, sort of influence. But yeah, I think, as you said before, it was that domino effect, wasn't it? As opposed to, you know, a, a, a production line of bands that all sound the same to each other.
0: Mm. and they also paved the way for loads of other bands right so one of the things that you were talking about was the yeah yeah years i love the yeah years as i'm sure you do as well and a bit of carano who doesn't love watching carano uh jerking jutting around the stage um <laughs> but how did uh, that, how did they you know how did it come about that the people particularly in the uk came to know about them because you know you know about this don't you
1: yeah, so I think keeping things in order. This is our point number seven, isn't it? They paved the way for loads of other bands, and uh, yeah, so the yeah, yeah Yeahs actually got known when Albert Hammond Jr. Once they got known, they were known within New York, but they got kind of international recognition when Albert Hammond wore their badge while appearing on TV, and people were like, oh, who's the, who are the yeah, yeah Yeahs? And there's a lot of information on this actually in that um, that book I was telling you about called Meet Me in the Bathroom by Elizabeth Goodman, which is kind of like a almost like a historical record um of the New York scene from kind of two thousand and one to sort of two thousand eleven, I think is when it sort of runs up to. And yeah, there were you know, there was a kind of whole line of bands behind the strokes. Not that all sounded like the strokes, but you know, stuff like Yeah yeah yeah, stuff like Interpol, bands that were kind of ready to go, if you know what I mean, once the spotlight was on New York. And obviously record labels, once a big band emerges from a city, they kind of go, What have you got next? you know, and a lot of those bands, particularly Interpol and Yeah yeah yeah's came to the UK before they'd really made a name in the US. Again, kind of following that, that sort of Strokes template. And there's even some funny examples of I think as well, like the Hives, remember the Hives?
0: I loved the Hives, Rick.
1: Now I'm not saying the Hives formed because of the Strokes, but they were kind of like a cartoon version of that kind of garage rock five piece sort of thing the Strokes did. And then everyone got into them around 2001 with that Your New Favourite Band album. And I think that was partly because you know, labels are looking for what's kind of a variation on the Strokes, like a more cartoon, sort of fun version of that. So again, I, th- I think they probably got notori- you know noticed off the back of the Strokes emerging.
0: I never even thought about the fact that the highs were quite similar to the Strokes in that. But how you've just explained it is kind of perfect. I but I've never even thought of it that way before. But yeah, they the the, the highs were just fun, high octane, just fun but weren't they whereas the str- they weren't cool in any sense of the word i don't think they're a bit more they're a bit of a parody weren't they like you said
1: exactly i think parody is a really good word for it but like a loving parody no yeah. not, not like they were taking but the mick
0: of it. but credible i still think in, in their own right they were still a credible amazing band I, I wonder what they'd think if they heard those comparisons they might not even think it themselves
1: i mean look i think bands sometimes can get in denial about the reasons that they get you know that they get kind of successful not i mean not even like in a in a sort of um not in, i don't know how to put this like not in a cynical way but just to understand sometimes that yeah the reason certain bands get signed is that a and R executives have kind of got their antennas out for anything that looks or sounds like something that's that's gone big somewhere else and like you say yeah they're not it's not the same sound it's not even really the same look but there's there's just that trace of that kind of garage rock sort of sound. And yeah, they were um they were a brilliant live band back in the day. They're still touring now, actually. They're doing like virtual gigs at the moment. I think they're one of those kind of cult bands that people remember and, and they've still got quite a, a sort of big following.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I'd love to see the hives again actually. So uh when they ever when bands ever start touring again and hopefully they do, uh, I think we should do a demo tapes uh, trip. But um I think we you know we we'll want to talk about not just the music really, right? And uh we want to talk a bit more about how people dressed.
1: Yeah so number eight on my list is they changed the way people dressed and I'm really interested to know what you think about this because we, as we've said on previous episodes, were in the same places at the same time, seeing some of the same bands but we didn't know each other so you know I'm interested in your take on how people dressed back in those days and for me The Strokes popularised kind of that um, converse and a certain cut of jeans and wearing leather jackets again and you know these things you could all buy in shops at that point i'm not saying that the strokes invented these things i just think they popularized people wearing that and like i said before the libertines definitely picked up on that and started dressing like that and then it kind of kind of came like a almost like the the signature indie look in the uk didn't it but i'm interested to know what you think when when you were around in those days did you notice that
0: Uh I think there were two different types of ways to ways to dress, weren't there? There was the definitely the, the 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 jeans and and leather jackets, as you said, and and kind of the big hair. It was very black and white. Uh, well, pretty much black, actually, just all black. Um, black jeans, black jackets, um, and the Converse as well. And then you had the more kind of I don't know, like the college t-shirts and and jeans that were. I don't really know what kind of music you'd relate that to, but do you know what I mean? Like the the the, mm. college, the, the American college t-shirts, that was a thing for, for ages. All the men used to wear that. Um, in terms of women, I, you know, everyone had a pair of Converse then. And I remember saying to my friend, I went to Leeds Festival when I was about 16. So it's probably around, around about the right time for this. And, and it, we were talking about, um, you know, boys that we were, fan- of course, like as you walk past guys at Leeds Festival and you're single at 16, you're going to be talking about who you fancy, right? So um, <laughs> we were kind of going past and I was like, oh yeah, he, he looks cute. And she was going, oh, he looks, and she was like, Sarah, everyone you've pointed out is wearing Converse. They all look the same. Why do you just go for someone because of the way they dress? <laughs> and I'll mm. never forget that comment. And I, I, my, in my head, I was thinking, well, it's probably because I know that they like the same bands that I do because that's how I used to identify people back, though, back then. back mm.
1: mm. I'm interested to know as well, do you think they influenced the way that girls and women dressed as well at the same time?
0: Well, I think, yeah, because we all wore Converse as well. I mean, I don't think I had a leather jacket. I think that was way out of my price range, and I've never been a fan of pleather. So I definitely didn't have that. But um, I had the jeans and and the – I can't, what I used to wear on, on T-shirts, yeah, just kind of jumpers and T-shirts and things like that. But, yeah, I definitely had the battered Converse. That was – the more battered, the better as well. It's almost like you, you could buy secondhand Converse and and it would be cooler than buying new Converse.
1: No, <laughs> mm, I know exactly what you mean. And I think, obviously, this probably segues nicely into number nine on the list of why we think the Strokes were so influential, which is if you're going to get all dressed up, you need somewhere to go, right? And that somewhere to go would have been indie clubs, indie discos that I think kind of really sprung up and really got popularised around kind of 2001, 2002 in the years afterwards. And the Strokes... One of those bands that made it cool to dance to guitars again, you know, particularly stuff like uh, "Last Night," which was a huge like indie anthem uh, back in the day, you know. And and I still think now, um, you know, when I dust off my dancing shoes, you know, when I think back to the last couple of years when I go out to a gig with the Whippersnappers, um, that sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But that's kind of how you feel now. I feel too old to be in those places, but I've definitely been in places in the last few years where I've heard last night played because it's it's now kind of a staple like can you remember maybe if not the first time you heard it like you do you remember that just being everywhere wherever you went around that time
0: oh my god of course like it was it was last night uh take me out um don't look back into the sun mr bright side all of those songs were just the the ones that got the floor fillers, I guess. So you'd you be listed on the Walkmen as well. Oh, that was such a such a great one. As soon as those song, any of those songs came on, it's almost like the place would erupt. The one-pound mm. pint would go everywhere, <laughs> including on your face, down your jeans, onto the carpet and make it stink in there. Um, hmm. and, and people just used to be bounce, pogoing around the stage, not giving a flying shite what they were, you know, what they looked like. And it was just a real you know there was there was no uh, conscious feeling about what you look like you know it was just let loose no one gives a crap and it was brilliant yeah. it was brilliant I think now you know going to places these days I, I tend not to go to many clubs these days I'm not really don't really like it because I feel like everyone cares what they look like with this whole Instagram culture and um everyone's worried that they're gonna get filmed or taken a photo of and they have to look their best and I, I just don't think that was around back then so it made it a lot more special for me I think
1: that's a really interesting point to make, isn't it? I think at the time, maybe people took cameras out on nights out in certain, but that was that seemed to me more of kind of the mainstream sort of clubs. Yeah, when you when you went to indie clubs, I don't think there was as much of that. And you make it, I think you use a really good word there in terms of when Last Night would come on or one of the other kind of hits that you said that kind of came along afterwards. The place would erupt. It's almost like there was a god tier of tracks that if you were a an indie DJing. I did a bit of indie DJing back in the day for 50 quid here and there, just playing CDs in... Uh, Who
0: didn't?
1: <laughs> we all did, right? In dingy bars in Manchester and stuff. And you had your kind of set of tracks that if if you felt that the place was was um, lacking in a bit of energy and you know needed livening up, you stick last night on. I mean, I, I was here in the interview I had with Gordon later, you know, we talk about how it's perfectly constructed for the dance floor and you kind of have about a 15 second, 15 to 20 second intro with the guitars. It's almost like you're, if you hear that and you're at the bar, right, neck, neck your pint, but heading for the dance floor sort of thing. That's it almost felt custom built for that, even if that's not actually what they were doing.
0: Mm, oh, if you're making me miss the indie discos, Rick, I think we need to move on from this conversation.
1: <laughs> All right, so so I guess we want to get into the interview, but the last one I was going to say, number ten on this list of reasons why they were so important, is they gave music journalists like me back in the day just something to write about for the next ten years. You know, as I said before, that you know it was the the music scene that had gone so stale, you know, in the UK and the US at the time, when there weren't really stars to write about. And then you know, when the Strokes emerged, the White Stripes emerged, the Libertines and Franz and Artsy Monkeys, as we talked about, there was suddenly kind of this cast of characters to to, you know, to write, um, copy about, you know, and Conor McNicholas, who became the editor of Enemy roughly around this time, kind of 2002 ish. Um, you know, he was accused of turning Enemy into a bit of like an indie smash hits as if that was kind of a bad thing, you know, and I think Enemy went from being probably a bit more serious. It was a big kind of, it was, it went smaller. It was a big newspaper when I first started buying it in 99 and then became kind of a small, you know, the actual size of the magazine was smaller and the amount of kind of just little, gossipy kind of tidbits that you would get in NME from that point like you know had they played a new song at a gig what were the new songs sounding like like who were they dating what were their side projects you know that it it, i say it was a symbiotic relationship they needed the press to 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 kind of promote what they were doing and we definitely needed someone to write about and the strokes were kind of right at the heart of that particularly actually because there was three years between "Is This It" and the next album "Room on Fire," so you can imagine for those three years just scratching around for any info we could about anything that was going on with the band, right?
0: I think that's you—you you just kind of encapsulated journalism in in a couple of uh, sentences there, Rick. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I think that's that's probably enough of us talking about why we love them. It's probably a good time to get the the interview that you did with Gordon on, isn't it?
1: Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so let's let's play it out. So on the line, I've got the man who, for my money, influenced the last 20 years of rock and roll more than anyone else uh, kind of in the world in his role as a producer uh, of The Strokes, Is This It? Mr. Gordon Raphael. And I guess, first question, do you ever kind of tire of of plaudits like that from music journalists like me and saying what, what you worked on 20 years ago?
3: Well, it's not only music journalists. It's every like 16 or 18 year old kid in every town in South America and Mexico and everywhere and to be honest it makes us smile every time i hear it you know uh, a lot of good stuff happened in my life and career once i hooked up with the strokes that's for sure and i guess we, we were talking off air uh,
1: just now and you didn't realize it's the 20 year anniversary of the modern agp you know the the record that the demos essentially that were turned into a record that sparked the whole thing with the strokes and that's in two days time and it's funny to me that you didn't you maybe didn't know that, that was coming up
3: you're the first person that has reminded me of that people are already talking about is this it but you're the first person that reminded me that there was something very powerful before that album
1: and I guess we'll we'll kind of go into all of that in, in a little bit more depth, but I wanted to kind of bring it into the now to start with. And I believe you're living in Hebden Bridge in in West Yorkshire. So you've obviously you lived not just in New York in your career, but you're known for your work in New York. So you've yeah. kind of swapped New York for New Yorkshire. What's what's brought <laughs> you to Heb
3: what's brought you to Hebden Bridge? Uh well, I started off the two thousands, uh living in London and then I moved to Berlin for about fifteen years. And one year ago, right now, I moved to West Yorkshire with some friends of mine from Berlin, very close friends and family, and uh, we just decided, let's go somewhere culturally cool, uh, English-speaking, and generally affordable, and Hebden Bridge checked all those boxes. It's funny you say that because I, I, we
1: interviewed a band called The Oriel's on the show uh, a couple of months back who were from Halifax just and they play lots of gigs in sort of Hebden Bridge. And I said to them, you know, I nearly moved to Hebden Bridge about 10 years ago because it's that it's it's got that real kind of creative side to it. It's, it's, it's a place not many people have heard of kind of nestled between Manchester and Leeds.
2: has right. the
1: best of both those worlds and a kind of world of its own. So how, as an American, have you found kind of ingratiating yourself
3: in that, that really cool kind of cultural scene? Well, um, of course, when I moved here, I expected that Manchester, Leeds and London were going to be the places I spent a lot of time. And I was just getting that uh, groove on when the world kind of stopped rock and rolling, shall we say. Mm. So it's a it's a fine place to spend for a pandemic. It's lots of hills and canals and rivers, and you can go for walks every day without running into too many people. And I like this town very much, but I never thought I'd be staying here day after day for a year straight. Mm. Um, So it's a bit of a surprise. Have you connected with any bands while you've been there, any artists? There's one really cool young band that's making waves, and and, uh, it's called Lounge Society. And in fact, I just had a little cameo in their next music video last week. They're very good. I saw them opening up uh, for Working Man's Club. Okay. Another band from around here. I saw them both at the Trades, which is a legendary venue here. It's one Mm -hmm. of the best things about I was just learning about that venue when it closed. But it's a very historic place and bands from all over the UK love to play there for showcases or whatever.
1: I mean, I, th- I think once this pandemic lives and gigs happen again, I-, I don't see you leaving Hebden Bridge for a while, given, you know, it is this secret enclave of, of not just local musicians, but touring bands as well. As you say, bands, quite big bands as well, like playing there, you know, you'll get like the Dubs or Peter Hook or people like that who will turn up and it's a much smaller venue than they'd normally play. So I think, yeah, yeah. You- you're in for a treat once uh, life gets back to some level of normal. Looking forward. So I guess we could I wanna hit a little bit kind of rewind further back on on your career and, and I understand that, you know, your music career started in Seattle. Um, you know, and that was the place where the probably the biggest rock earthquake in the US happened before the earthquake in the stroke, you know, in the New York with the strokes. But you know, before all that, in the eighties, you were in some, some bands um, as well. And I, I said to you off air, i am been doing a bit of a treasure hunt of some of those bands that you yep. were you're in, Metal Mannequin, Color Twigs. So can you, what was it that drew you to rock and roll in the first place?
3: Well, British rock, uh, mostly British rock, you know, Rolling Stones, The Beatles. Um, and then I hit Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and Frank Zappa. And by that time, that's all I wanted to talk about with my friends. That's all I wanted to do is be in a band. And I started being in bands when I was 13. So, you know, really early on, it, I already knew this is what the most fun thing I could do is and started like that. And what, what instruments were you playing kind of back in the day? Was, were you drawn to? I was trained as a keyboard player, a piano player, and I got an electric organ when I was a young teenager. And that allowed me to join in bands because I wouldn't want to carry a piano around. And then later I got into synthesizers and all kinds of multi-keyboard setups. then i started learning guitar and bass and singing and writing my own music so it kind of was a progression
1: he's sort of quite famously associated with this thing called the arp odyssey um which is like a kind of keyboard mixed with kind of a sort of studio mixing desk almost sort of thing with a pretty unique sound can you explain to our listeners exactly what that is
3: it is a very much a, a first generation analog synthesizer that was designed for home use you know not in a university where the synthesizers took up a whole room um, Moog came out with the mini Moog and this company called ARP came out with the Odyssey and they were competing really heavily in the 70s and 80s for the market share and I just quickly I, I just started listening to a lot of progressive music progressive rock from England and they all had like Hammond organs and synthesizers and Mellotrons, and I was like that's my next move and once I got my hand on the ARP Odyssey synth, it's like my favorite instrument ever. It's funny you say
1: that about English progressive rock, because one of the things I found was some metal mannequin tracks when I was, I was on this, uh, this audio treasure hunt. And yeah, what really came through for me was stuff like Yes and Bits of Pink Floyd and all that really overblown um, 70s kind of prog that, that England was, was known for, but filled stadiums here as well. Like, oh. what was it about
3: that, those sort of sounds that you loved? Well, I mean, something happened that when I first started hearing synthesizers, I felt like I was hearing the future and I was hearing outer space. And I was hearing what was promised to me in my science classes. Uh, something about it just really appeared to uh, as a new frontier. You know, and I thought those guys looked really cool when they had like their two like Rick Wakeman and Keith Emerson, when they had their two hands spread out playing two different keyboards at the Mm. same time. I thought that's really showing off. I wanna do that. I wanna wear capes and make space sounds. And all the kind of lyrical themes as well, you know,
1: Pipers at the Gates of Dawn and sort of things like that.
3: Yes, that was because of the uh end phase of the psychedelic revolution, of course, where there's all kinds of wacky thoughts going through people's minds. And then kind of in the 90s, I noticed you are in a band called
1: Sky Cries Mary, which yes. I guess there was some some similarities with some of those bands, but I would say maybe less experimental in, in some ways as well. Can you talk us through kind of your
3: time well, in, in that band? You know, when I was working in the late 70s and the 80s in Seattle, there was no scene to speak of. There was cool bands, but there was like no hope of getting our music heard. And then by the 90s, that was like the first time where Seattle was on the map as a music capital. So it was a great time for us. Every band got signed, basically, and every band was gigging and touring and getting publishing deals. And it was a brilliant time for us. And I got put into this tribal space rock band and they had a DJ. So they were doing like house beats and all kinds of modern dance music beats spinning from records while I was playing my synth on top and we had a full band to boot. So it was really psychedelic and really danceable and we were super well loved in Seattle. We didn't translate out of Seattle very much like the other bands did, Mm. but we were also one of the only bands in town that we had like boys and girls and we had a DJ and we had a light show and seven members of the band. (laughs) It It was a really one of a kind band.
1: What I thought was interesting was, you know, often cities get kind of tarred with, I say tarred with, you know, they, they get known for a sound or a scene. You know, Seattle, it was the the grunge scene, yeah. but yet there were other clearly other things going on in Seattle, like like Skye's cry Mary. So does that mean that you think had grunge not happened, maybe there'd have been more of a spotlight on your scene, or is it more a case that it's accepting that cities have a spectrum of music actually, and and yeah. that they get, you know they get tied to one sound that's not actually the reality of living in that city and being a musician there.
3: Right. For example, in New York, when the Strokes were out, it wasn't that New York was just going through that sound, even though the NME pages made it look like that. There was Mm. a hell of a lot of other musical styles that were even more popular. Um, Of course, I think it had to do with the former, what you said, that the city had a very diverse set of sounds, Seattle did. It had a very big underground rave culture, um, a huge electronic dance culture going on, um, as well as the grunge thing. And that's kind of where our our band crossed both of those.
1: And you're talking about New York there. My understanding is that you lived in New York at least twice, you know, once before and then when you, you kind of came back. Before then, the Strokes kind of explosion happened. So, what? How? Just kind of map out your journey across the U.S. Is that possible now?
3: Bit of a flashback within a flashback. I actually was born in New York. Right. And okay. Then my dad moved us to Seattle because he got a job teaching at the university there. But everybody knew in Seattle when I was coming up that the only where to go, the only place to go to make it in music, was Los Angeles or New York. And I didn't want to. I, I pictured. Los Angeles has like beaches and sports cars and all this stuff. And that wasn't interesting to me. But the things that were happening in New York from the Velvet Underground and Blondie and the Ramones and Talking Head, I thought, yeah, New York is the coolest place in the world, at least in the U.S. So I tried to go there as quickly as I could. It took a long time for me to get the everything together to go there. And when I went there, I didn't have any luck at all. It was really, it was just a drag and I had to come back to Seattle. But luckily I came back to Seattle in time for the grunge explosion. So that was perfect timing. And then the next time I went back to New York was after the grunge was already gone. Like it didn't last that long. It lasted Mm -hmm. like 89 to say 94-ish and the death phase was 95 and 96. And then by that time... I had a chance to go to New York again with a band I was in called Absinthe and that's when everything started taking off in a good way for me
1: and I understand that eventually you opened a studio in in New York. you're yes. in a band, but you kind of had half an eye on the production side, maybe driven by some of the kind of synth and uh, you know even looking at the R podyssey. I mean you know you can see in that it's got a little studio mixing decks best so kind of built in. so what was it? Did you always have half an eye on
3: production? Or how, how did that come about? I learned how to do production starting when I was about 19 and 18. And by the time I was 20, I was really into it because I was only recording my songs. Like I learned how to produce so I could make my own music. I didn't want to produce other bands. I just wanted to work on my own songs. So that second time I moved to New York, I suddenly started being connected with other bands and other musicians who wanted to take advantage of the fact that I seemed to know what I was doing Mm. and uh, give them a bit of a strange sound because of all the experimenting I'd done with my synthesizer and other things in the recording process. So at a certain point I was just working in a studio. It wasn't my own studio and bands were coming to me starting left and right, like just coming down and coming down. And I suddenly became a producer, you know, Mm. like you kind of had your name above the door, job
1: title, Gordon Raphael, producer sort of thing.
3: It just seemed like at a certain point I went from someone who was working on my own music to someone that was, people were just coming downstairs in the studio in the basement and I was recording them and then I'd have to wait till the days off to work on my own music. It just kind of shifted within six
1: months. Mm. And you're talking about timing and timing being every, I think you know in your career it sounds like timing was everything because you know you caught the strokes at the luna lounge i understand uh, yes. and you well from my ownness i don't know if this is true but i read that you saw them and they weren't even the best band on the bill that night but you got a a card to albert uh, yeah. in in the band so how was, what are your recollections of that
3: it wasn't that they weren't the best band it was just the band before it spoke to my musical sensibilities like, mm. The band before, it kind of sounded like a Beatlesy thing with vocal harmonies, and they were really together. They they were seasoned musicians, it seemed like. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I gave them my card too, but they didn't call me. And the Strokes, you know, I thought they were cool, but they weren't my favourite band of the night. And But they did come over to make a demo.
1: So, yeah, talk, talk us through that. You know, that became the the modern age, um, EP, you know, what, what was the brief when they came in to record those tracks?
3: They said, we're tired of playing clubs for free. Maybe if we made a demo with you, uh, we could play the clubs that pay like a hundred dollars, you know, a night and we wouldn't have to lose money every time we play by taking cabs and, and buying our own beer, etc. Mm. So they just wanted to make a three song demo to help them, uh, get the next level of club gigs in New York. That was the brief.
1: And these five kids, they were kids, you know, they were kind of late teens, early 20s at the time, I understand. Yes. Land in your studio. What were your first impressions of everything, right? I guess you had the first impression yeah. at the gig, but this yeah. would have been the first time you probably met them. What was that first impression as
3: these five guys arrived? Um, well, I remember that, you know, I thought they were just okay at the, at the gig, so I didn't have like super high expectations. Um, but then when they started playing, I noticed how seriously they were taking their jobs and how there was no, like there was just no room for error. And they were really meticulous and paying careful attention. And they were very articulate with each other. They were communicating very well. I was very impressed by all of that. Like, wow, they're really, they're not letting anything go. Like a lot of musicians, it's like, that's oh, okay. It's rock and roll or close enough for jazz it's got to be loose it's fine should be spontaneous but these guys were super careful and super aware of every part of the music so that was a big surprise for me because that's interesting
1: with their image isn't it they've got that nonchalant image so that nonchalant uh, rock and roll image but what you're saying is if you if you work with them at the time they were they were serious dudes about this you know they knew what they wanted they had that vision and they they were going for it Was there a dynamic in the band of of there being a leader there or someone leading it, or was it more of a democracy, do you think?
3: Uh, First, I'll just say that, like, yeah, on stage and interviews and photos, nonchalant, uh, carefree, uh, messed up, you know, would might come to mind. But any song on Is This It or watching the video for something like uh, Reptilia, You know, you just see the scientific precision of everything and the tempos are just, like, incredibly solid. There's no room for monkeying around and there's nothing Mm. much like a a little mistake or, I don't know, looseness, improvisation. It seems really organized, okay? So going back to your second question, um, it was pretty democratic in the sense that when they were... The musicians of the band, after a while, we got a flow where the musicians would go out and play the music. And Julian and what they called the guru, J.P. Bowersock, would sit Mm -hmm. in the control room talking about the next steps. or I don't know exactly what they were talking about because I was concentrating on recording the instruments. And I could tell that the four people out in that room were cooperating and talking amongst themselves. Like each one knew what they were supposed to do and what the other person was supposed to do. Now, occasionally Julian would run out there and have a, like a little pep talk or say like something needed attention. So he would, he would go out there and become part of that, even though he wasn't singing yet. Mm. But at that point, I didn't really know that he had written those songs and he was I didn't know how much of an active role he had at that point it just seemed like a a very organized band who were caring very much about it and were very intelligent at the mm. kind of things they were telling me you know they weren't uh, they weren't just I don't know they, they were very specific when they talked to me about what I should be thinking about and what they wanted and their ideas were extremely laser focused It's
1: interesting you say that because I read a quote from Julian, or I think maybe it's what you recall Julian telling you, which was he wanted you he wanted the record or the demos to sound like you took a trip to the future and discovered a record from the past you'd never heard before, and I can totally hear that when, when I listen to but listen back to that e p but that's quite a brief, isn't it to take on board you know
3: uh luckily as I described, they were very laser focused about what they were requiring of me and what they were asking me to do. Luckily, not everything in those sessions was as mystical and open-ended as what Julian said. Um, There was another brief that came from uh, Fab, I believe, that was very understandable and made me understand Julian's idea much better. And Fab said to me, you know what everybody else is doing? that's what we don't want to do Mm. okay so that those two little mystical uh phrases gave me lots of ideas and you know ultimately those three tracks i think what's so interesting
1: and impressive actually is they ended up on is they say often bands do demos because that's what they are they're you know arctic monkeys i i remember i got they they once turned up and gave me their demos when i lived in sheffield because i was the enemy writer and a lot of those songs have never been heard since because that's what they were they were they were scratchy songs, right? right. The Strokes, you know, um, Barely Legal, Modern Age, Last Night, three of their biggest songs, three of the biggest songs of their career, and they seem to just stroll in and demo those. So it's yeah. that's got to be amazing that that ended up being on the record, all three of them. It's a hat trick, right?
3: Well... First of all, I just want to make sure that you know that the version of those songs on "Is This It" are not the same versions as on. Absolutely,
1: yeah, they sound very. I mean, very different. Much much more raw
3: and rough and ready, you know. Me to me, it's not that much difference, but it is, you know, because I know because there were two different sessions. Mm. It's different. There are differences, but um, not for me, not night and day differences. Little things here and there. Okay. Mm. Um. It was amazing that they put those songs on the EP. And what was really amazing is who would have thought that this demo, I never thought, was going to be made into a record. That was the surprise. And Mm. then the next surprise was, what do you know? People like it. And there are people in England liking it, not the people in America.
1: (laughs) And that's the point, isn't it? This is where things started to go a bit crazy. You know, Jeff Travis from Rough Trade Heard I heard apparently you heard twenty seconds of the the EP or something down the phone and immediately said, "I want that band." You know, next thing you know, they're touring in the UK and Kate Moss is showing up and yeah. Radio Radiohead showing up. So, you know, at the end of those sessions, it sounds to me like you maybe didn't quite realize what you just created in terms of the, the craziness that followed, right? No,
3: for me, no clue, no clue. In fact, everybody was talking about that in new york rock and roll was a bit of a past it's a past tense you know Mm -hmm. nobody nobody was really interested in guitar music and from people musicians from london that were crossing through my studio they also let me know that venues were closing down and there were fewer and fewer places to play guitar rock music in london so as far as i was aware the kids in the strokes were just like a little bit too late and of the wrong era. And their music also, it's really sounded like stuff from a long time ago, like the Stooges and the Velvet Underground. And I didn't even think that kids their age would have ever heard that music. Like Mm. it wasn't Spotify. There wasn't a musically active internet at those times. So when I was hearing them demoing those songs, I was going like, "Why why does this remind me of music that I love? You know, these kids are a couple generations younger than me. And yet yeah. I know this music. This is, I know what to do with this music because it's the music of that I listen to.
1: And I kind of heard that, you know, you were almost so blindsided by the, where this sort of, this, this EP went that Julian almost kind of ribbed you a little bit. So you should have signed a contract with us at the time because you'd have made, you'd have made a load of money. I mean, I'm sure you made that money further down the line, but at the time, yeah. how how did you feel when kind of Julian made that point.
3: Um I felt upset. <laughs> huh. You know, he was yeah, he said it right before one of their little showcase shows, not little, like they they had a residency um based on the success they were having in England and it was at one of those shows he pointed that out to me and of course I, when a young band comes in and makes a demo, I I don't think I got to get my claws on them and sign a contract. I just think, okay, let's, you know, let's do something good for them. And, um, maybe in the future that if something happens, they'll come back to me. And, uh, so, yeah. And that's something did happen, right? My understanding is that
1: rough trade actually wanted them to make the album with Gil Norton, you know, famous for his work with Foo Fighters and Pixies, um, were you disappointed in to have not been asked to to work on the album initially? Obviously, we know we'll come into a minute what happened subsequently. But was there any sense of well, I've created a great EP for you guys. I'm I'm in pole, I should be in pole position here. You know.
3: Yeah, there was definitely um, a moment of sadness and being upset, and I thought, oh man, I could have been famous.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then obviously you get the call to say, well, actually the
1: sessions with Gil. Who you know is a pretty well-renowned producer, but perhaps for
3: more straight-ahead rock bands, not I don't garage,
1: garage rock bands.
3: I mean, Pixies. Uh, you know, I had I had nothing but respect for Gil Norton. I mean, I knew what a powerhouse he has been in the industry as a producer. So I was like, yeah, well, it's no doubt, it's no wonder they're going with someone so famous and powerful. Um, when I'm just a kind of a starting-off producer and never really worked with anyone famous. Mm. So, um, yeah, there was a moment there.
1: And then they picked up the back phone and said, actually, yeah. Gordon, we want you to come and work on the record. So what was that like to walk in at a point they'd already... And I'm assuming this, those sessions must have been scrapped,
3: right? The ones they'd done with Gil yeah. and they started I heard again. Heard. I never heard any of those sessions. Um, but, yeah, you can imagine... How celebratory! I must have felt mm-hmm. to get that uh, phone call.
1: <laughs> and you kind of—I guess the 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 kids that were there making the demo with you a few months earlier there were similar, but similar. You know, things had happened to them in that period of time between the modern age and and the album. So again, like you—you you walk into the studio, you're working on the album. Like, did the atmosphere change? Like, what was the atmosphere like?
3: Well, there was a meeting—a great meeting that took place uh, between the phone call that they said to confirm that I could do it and starting this, the sessions where they came into my studio, brought examples of music that they like and actually had a lovely uh, meeting with me to uh, map out how what we were going to do. So the demos, the three songs were made in three days and they were asking for seven weeks of time which would be the longest I ever worked with a band in my life. Um, Even on my own projects, I never, or my own bands, I never worked for seven weeks on Mm -hmm. albums. So this was going to be like a big thing. And yeah, it was a different, it was a very different feeling from a band that just played a free show and was looking for some way out to the next level of club, to a band that was being hyped in the NME and had just done a, very well received set of shows in england you know for some young kids from new york even for me thinking about rocking out in england that that was super impressive
2: Mm.
3: there was a lot of excitement and energy i think i was the most excited no they were pretty excited but also they were very because of the nature of the way that they think they were very concerned you know they Mm. had much i didn't have concern i just had like a lot of like yahoo you know we're, we're <laughs> rock we're gonna kill i was really excited and and the world's already gonna hear this england's gonna be loving this i had all these really high hopes and really exuberant attitude and they were going like okay we have this chance we need to take advantage of it and focus and we need to hope for the hope like hell that we're gonna do a good job so they had like this weight of responsibility on them and so I guess
1: it it sounds to me like maybe you didn't feel that weight of pressure in terms of creating a really important
3: record for this band, you know? I think I had, I think, at the, I don't know, I just had an exuberant attitude, like, we're going to kill this. Are you kidding me? If England went crazy over a three-day demo, man, given seven weeks and this great band, you know, and this opportunity, it's going to be... I don't know, it was going to be great. I could just feel the world on our side. Mm, mm. At the same time, I didn't really realize how much actual physical and mental work was going to be required of me. I had, that part hadn't settled in yet. Um, but going into that record, I was just pr- pretty giddy with excitement. You
1: talked about having kind of the world on your side, but I guess it points their American label RCA weren't on your side. I heard this, that they came down to one of the sessions and you were recording Julian's vocal and they were like, can you take that distortion off Julian's voice or something along those lines? And you listen to the album now and you're like, that's one of the coolest things about it. If you remove that, then you remove one of the greatest things about it. So was that frustrating when you felt there were people who weren't getting what you were trying to achieve with them?
3: It was extremely frustrating because I was, uh, RCA wanted me off the job they thought i was a clown and i was ruining the strokes chance for success that was exactly how they felt on the other hand when james endicott and uh, the nme writers came over from england to sit in the studio and hear those same songs they were throwing their hats in the air (laughs) and, and going yippee and jumping up and down and i thought okay i'm not the only one that thinks this is amazing there's some british record guys you know who are so historical and so cool and they can see what i'm trying to do i didn't feel so bad (laughs) Mm. and
1: that's what i want to kind of get into a little bit more there's really understanding some of that magic that you know that stardust i think you sprinkled on that album and something sprung to mind you know i've i said to you off air i'm not a producer i'm a i'm a kind of like i say a recovery music journalist so I maybe don't hear the same things that a producer would hear, but I thought Dove's made a really interesting uh, comment recently about they had a track called Carousel. I don't know if you've heard that off their their late. They they kind of brought and they brought they came back with a new album last year, and they said that for that track the studio became an instrument in of itself. You know they had obviously the guitar, the bass, the drums, but the the studio setup was kind of an instrument in of itself. And when I heard that, I thought. I almost see Is This It in the same way that, yes, it's about those flawless songs. I think it's a flawless album beginning to end in terms of the, the songwriting and the delivery. But the production is so different to anything else that was going on at the time. You have to almost consider the, the studio and the production as an instrument in of itself. Like, I wonder how you feel about, about that.
3: Um, let's see. I spent a lot of the 90s working on industrial music. So... In that sense, we were taking every sound that was uh, available from automobiles, rockets, machines, synthesizers, singing, drums, army boots marching, and we were kind of mushing it together and destroying it with lots of distortion and lots of strange echoes and, you know, really artificial and really uh, mental landscapes, Okay. So I had a lot of experience making strange sounds. When the strokes came to me, I realized that there was going to be some creativity needed in recording them, but they also had many, many ideas. And when they said, let's not sound like anything else that's going on right now, I thought what's not going on right now is just a band playing. Okay, mm. let's, let's have that. Let's not try to make it bigger than life by adding 10 guitars or 10 different drums playing at the same time, which is what everybody was doing. Um, Why don't you just go out and play the song and we'll capture it in a very unusual way that's kind of raw. That was like kind of my contribution was helping come up with that approach to recording them. And then they had millions of contributions of their own. For example, they didn't add backing vocals. They didn't want to sing harmonies. They didn't want to add a tambourine. Hmm. You know, all these little things, it made for like this sound that, wait, what is that crazy sound? Oh, it's a band playing recorded by a few mics and they're playing all at the same time. It's not like isolate one guy in a little chamber and ask him to play to perfection, to a metronome, and then edit the living daylights out of that, and then add the next guy in a sterile test tube. Mm. Just go out there, look at each other in the eye, and play. And at that time, that was a revolutionary act.
2: Mm.
1: I know you get asked a lot about Julian's vocal, but I guess what I was thinking when I was listening back to, to the album again, you know, over the last kind of couple of weeks is the vocal isn't always front and center. It sometimes feels a little bit off to the side, both in terms of the obviously it's there, but it isn't always. You know, a lot of records at that time, the vocal would be really high in the mix, and the music would be somewhere down here. Right. Again, it was that? And you're a producer, and I'm not. So am I? Either I'm hearing things that aren't there, or was there some deliberate element to that that it brought all the other instruments to the fore as well?
3: Um, a lot of those seven weeks of production were sitting around the songs with five guys. And the guru JP Bowersock, and having me and them all talking about every part like, where should it be? Where should it be located in space? Should it be off to the right? Should it be off to the left? How loud should it be? Should it ever come up a little bit? Should it go? So, every moment it was like a chess game with six people, uh, seven, including me, seven people talking about every moment. It was a real group. Uh, movement and so every volume and every placement and every tone were considered by everyone which is really weird because in most bands the drummer won't have comments to say about the guitar and the Mm. guitarist won't have comments to say about the hi-hat or the snare drum but in this case everybody was contributory and really vital and I wanna kind of understand a little bit more about some of the
1: tracks themselves and kind of go into some of those those sort of details. Um, you know, I guess because like you say, it was it was precision, sort of precision engineered in that sense. And you know, you kick off with, is this it? And I always thought that was a really interesting opener in that it's not that kind of frenetic in-your-face kind of um get almost that garagey rock punky sound that you had on some of the singles. Mm-hmm. it's it's really kind of easing you in but that moment the bass the sound of that bass it's so uh-huh. 70s sounding uh-huh. when that kind of just bounces in gently almost like it's coming in on a wave or something you know but mm-hmm. it's very subtle That's so you know how do you reflect on that as a track and its placement right up front on on the album
3: well i'm pretty sure that was the last song they recorded is like they had all these rocker songs and then okay we got one more and then they come out with that and i thought whoa, this is really different. And I don't know exactly whose idea from the band it was to put that as the first song or call the album that. Um, That that happened, you know, seven weeks in, a lot of heavy work, and near the end, that song gets whipped out. Mm. I don't even know if it was finished when they started recording it. I don't know if the lyrics were finished. It might have been a new idea in progress. I'm not sure of the history of that song, but i have a feeling it was very far into the album that that came out and um yeah it was totally their call to put it on the first
1: as the first track cuz i understand that julian's classically trained so he looks at the way that the guitar and the bass kind of knits together in a slightly different way than than others might and i think maybe that comes across in that song where the bass line isn't just merely following the guitar line yeah it's kind of it, it's got a path of its own
3: yeah i think I don't know his background. I never talked to him about how he learned to do what he did. Um, but the thing that, about the Strokes albums I worked on is that every instrument plays a melody. Mm. No instrument follows each other along, which is really unusual in rock music. Um, usually the bass kind of supports the guitar. And you know, there's a rhythm guitar playing a basic pattern. But in this music, it's like the bass Two guitars and voice are playing a melody, and even the little drum pitter patters are kind of mm. melodic. And that is a strange way to make rock music. I yeah, like totally.
1: Yeah, it. it's. I think it's what it's what immediately strikes you when you when you listen, even if you don't know that's what you're hearing. When someone explains that to you, who's more musically minded than me, you're like, oh no, that that now makes kind of total sense. And then the second track is obviously the Modern Age, which was on the kind of original EP, a different version, but. I think what's cool about this is the imperfections are still in there. You can hear this is a, a kind of a live take that it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not like you've built this in a factory somewhere The the, the blemishes are what makes this, this so great. I think, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, do you, do you have kind of memories of, of when they recorded this and, and what, what
3: well, kind of wanting those imperfections
1: to stay in there? You know,
3: of course, like when they recorded that song, um, That was only one of three songs for the album that I'd heard before and worked on before. So it was like, and I really liked, like, by the time I finished working on it on the EP, I really liked that song. Like, it had great lyrics and it had, I don't know, painted a great picture. And it really kind of is one of the, it's one of the template songs for their sound for, for me. It's got all the elements that mean the strokes are rocking, you know. Very um, very original kind of song, I think.
1: Even just that kind of that that guitar and drum intro, that almost metronome drumming, right? You yeah. can't not listen to that, right? It, that cannot not strike you, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got the third track, which is "Soma," which for me I think is my favourite song on the album. I think it's wow. pretty close to being yeah. to being my favourite on the album. Um, Amazing song. I think that's the bit where you go, it goes from being like a great album to God, this could be like a generational album. I could even pinpoint the bit in that track. It's where the stop and go lyric yeah. comes in. And the way that's delivered, the way the bass just kind of sweeps underneath that. And you're like, oh, I don't yeah. know, when you, when you, when I listen to a new album or even when I come back to an album, it's like, where are those moments that take something kind of, take it into space almost? And that's sure. for me on that track where that just, it yeah, it, it blasts off, you know? The real push and pull in the vocal, you know, restraint, I think is probably the word you'd use with Julian sometimes, is he's got that great tension
3: in his voice, yeah. you know? One, one of To me, one of his greatest strong points, other than never missing a note and making great melodies, is he's got the sense of rhythm that is completely jaw-dropping and uncanny. Like, he can just mess around by kind of going way off the rhythm or going, falling way behind. And you think he's just going to be completely lost or he must be drunk out of his brain. You don't know why Mm. he's doing that. And then at a key moment, he just pops right back in on the rhythm to let you know that it's all control. It's all like totally expertise, you know, Mm. that falling behind. It's almost like, like a ballerina, you know? I think that control is—it's
1: such a—that's such a key way of describing it. I think you've absolutely kind of nailed what I was probably trying to uh, trying to trying to articulate there.
3: Um, I, th- barely... I think you made a very good point. You know, part of what makes those records so incredible is the way that he is pulling the rhythms on those. You know. Mm. And
1: Barely Legal, uh, which has almost like a bit of a hard rock, almost metallic edge to to sort of parts of the guitar sound. And that's something the Strokes would return to, I think, further on in their career, you know, on first impressions of Earth. But I guess, did you get a sense when you were recording material like that, that they were this garage rock indie band or whatever you would want to call it, but Mm. that their horizons were maybe a little bit broader and they were just starting to maybe start to dip a toe into kind of other areas of rock?
3: Well, because Barely Legal was on the very first thing, it was all part of the fir- the, my first uh, introduction to their sound. And I thought it was pretty, I don't know, pretty basement-y or pretty punk rocky because it's so insistent. It's so, mm. just, it's so repetitive in the rhythm and un- un- unrelenting. It just felt like you're being pummeled in this really punk-rock, aggressive way that I really liked. Mm. I think aggression is, is kind of a good way
1: of uh, describing that. Probably not what you'd describe the next track someday as being, mainly because I guess my the way I listen to that now is different because I don't know if you've been in the UK long enough to know that that's now the soundtrack to the TUI holiday adverts over here. That for the last couple of years has been like the soundtrack to some, summer package holidays in the UK. So everyone in the UK would know that track from being on that ad.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah that's such a beautiful song it's one of the one of the most beautiful songs on the record i think
1: but it's 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 the if albums have light and shade that's the light isn't it that's the uh, the carefree yeah. uh, even the video if you watch the video to that it's
3: just them goofing around new york right which is what the song's about it's very chilled and relaxing and kind of soft and treats you very
1: well and do you think albums need that you know particularly albums that have those frenetic aggressive as you said on barely legal you know if you have that for every track it can become overwhelming does it need those moments of of chill and of just taking a step back do you think
3: i think the best records have a feeling of continuity and also a great deal of contrast and adventure you know for example sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band you Mm. know that album you know you can tell it's the beatles all the way through but it goes from indian within you and without you to like rock and roll to like ballads to like cheesy historical british music you mm. know all over the map but it, it's really unified and that's i think the template of an interesting record with so much in mm. sure and yet an identifiable feeling
1: totally hear what you're saying and you know even i think we talk about the next track alone together where you know that, that does not follow on for me from Someday in terms of the style. In fact, I think that's the point where, you know, one of the rules of punk is don't play a guitar solo, right? You know, punk right. is all about uh, three chords and away you go. Whereas this has a brilliant guitar solo in it uh, alone together. For me, the best solo on the record. So like, uh, do you have memories of recording that?
3: Yes, I do. Um, there were three songs on the record that employed a completely different recording setup than the the other ones. Like there's basically two types of songs on that album. There are the songs that sound like a band playing in a, in a basement or a small room rocking out. And then there's songs like hard to explain alone together and Soma that have a little bit of a different feeling to them because they were recorded on purpose in a more modern electronic, but still Kind of basement rock way. So, mm. we worked very hard to get this unusual drum sound that sounded like a robot drum or a machine drum, but it was really real drums. We just used production techniques to make it sound like no one could play that except a, a robot. Mm, mm. And then kind of next on the
1: record, Last Night. I mean, what can you say about Last Night? 325 million streams and counting on Spotify. You know, it's the yeah. track that obviously became almost bigger than The Strokes at one point, I think. It's the track everyone knows, whether it's if you right. go to a wedding, some right. of right. the weddings I go to, I'll make sure that i request at least a Last Night is something that your gran would know, you know, and your, you know, your young cousin who was 10 years old, right? So I guess what... It is the biggest in terms of a single track on, on kind of the album, but how do, you, how do you reflect on that now? What do you think it brings to the
3: record? Well, I think my favorite thing about last night is the lyrics. The lyrics are really weird, like spaceships they won't understand, you know? Mm. So he, he's got this song that is so obviously like radio-friendly, and when that, rec- when that album came out, I was in London at that time and every club up and down the street was playing that song and the radio stations were playing. It It seemed like for a moment that was like the theme of London for, mm. for the weeks when that record was coming out, everybody was into that song. So I think that's probably the song that kicked the doors open, like that convinced listeners to give the record, the whole album a chance. So I think it was a very important song for the album and for my career and for The Stroke's career. I don't know how they feel if they have to play that song nowadays, because many mm. fans learn to hate the most popular song they created because people just want to hear it and they talk about it all the time. It's
1: so interesting you say about that being everywhere in, in clubs and indie clubs and bars that you know, I was at college and university at the time. And what's great about that song, it has enough of an intro before the vocal that... Mm. You know, you hear that, you know it's come on, and everyone heads for the dance floor, right? But you've got just enough time
2: uh-huh. to finish
1: your drink, put it on the bar, and by the time you're on the dance floor, Julian's vocal starts, right? And then everyone erupts into that. I mean, you must have seen that happen when you were
3: out in London at the time, right? Yeah, I saw it happen, but I think that I never heard it, I never thought about the way you just described it, and I think that's a really great observation. <laughs> there's, there's,
1: there's just some tracks that do that, though, don't they? They give you just enough time uh-huh. to finish what you're doing
3: Kind of report, sort of report to the dance floor, but that, I guess you I, know, wouldn't at the t- I wouldn't be surprised if Julian was thinking about something like that when he ma- <laughs> when he constructed it. For goodness' sake!
1: But I guess what also must have been interesting it was, you know, that as the producer, you could have been in bars and clubs, and maybe ninety five or even ninety nine percent of the people in there wouldn't know it was you that had produced it, right? That's- Unless you were in your in, sort of immediate circles. So that must be <laughs>
3: quite a strange thing to experience it happens to this day i mean I, how many times do i go into a shop clothing shop whatever and they're playing my song like
1: yeah cool cool and you were saying earlier hard to explain the next song uh, on the album and i see this as kind of like the connoisseur's choice of of you know if if last night is the is the single everyone knows this is actually yeah. the The single that everyone should know if you know what i mean and you mentioned about the drumming right how they don't they didn't use a clicker in the studio yet i mean that is so metronomic that it doesn't sound like a real drummer so i'd love to know how you how you got it to sound like that in in the kind of you know the opening 10 15 seconds you know
3: well you know julian took me to his house and played me some demos that he made himself of that song and um, he, he said you know I used a drum machine when I made this song, and I just loved the drum machine. But mm-hmm. I thought Fab not to be on our first record on a song. You know that would be awful. And, he, and Julian looked really sad and concerned when he asked me this. And I said, I just thought to myself, you know, all I did during the '90s is work with drum machines and mechanical sounding drums. Like to make a drum set sound like a drum machine, I had a hundred different ideas of what we could try. And I probably used 20 of those ideas in actual fact
2: uh, Mm.
3: when we did it. So I said, check this out. Now look what I'm going to do. Now look what I'm going to do. And they were like, wow, that's so cool, because it sounds just like what we wanted, but we're all playing music on this track. Mm. And then
1: kind of next up on the album, I guess, the the only... I guess the only song that where they couldn't have foreseen what would come afterwards is New York city cops, right? Where, <laughs> you know, obviously nine 11 happened. Um, literally, I think it was a few weeks before it was released in the U S but a few weeks after it was released in the UK. Cause there was a gap between, yes. um, releases, I guess from a musical side, it's got more of that kind of harder rock edge, but lyrically, I guess they were in a bit of a situation where they couldn't, I think it was taken off the album in the U S right. Because, you couldn't release that with what had, what had happened in New York you know it's is just unbelievable you know even now you you can barely believe that happened I was reading I was reading back about it in meet me in the bathroom you know the the book about the New York scene and just reading how people who were there
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know around that time both kind of before and after you almost again I can't conceive that 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 9-11 even happened yet and it's it's mm-hmm. been nearly 20 years and yet on the album you had this track that then was almost unusable so how do you kind of reflect on on
3: that now first of all i believe that new york city cops was the b-side to the hard to explain single so it came out in england even before the album or right when the album came out i forget what the timing was but Mm. you had it not only as an album you had it as a single in the uk and yeah, there was this fateful, fateful meeting where the record company and the band came to my studio and we were all talking about how we're we going to release an album with New York City cops in this climate when everybody's saying that the cops are heroes. And it was a really sad moment, but they all decided amongst themselves, wasn't my decision, um, they, the band and their label and their management all talked about it and decided to take it off the album and record a new song to put in at the last minute um, that wasn't recorded for the album. And for me, it was a really sad thing because I think New York City Cops is a stream signature sound, just like the modern age song. Like That is the power and the glory of The Strokes is New York City Cops. And the fact that that wasn't on the album, to me it kind of partially tied into why it took so much longer too for the strokes to catch on in the u.s than mm. hey uh, other than the obvious reason that it, there's so many cultures in the u.s and it's so expansive to tour it just took a lot longer of going around the loop to get the u.s on their side whereas the uk was already on the side of the strokes from the ep on mm. and, and yeah it was very strange when we had to take that song off the album and I don't know if you know this, but there were already warehouses full of the album with it on. Hmm. And so this whole warehouse full of vinyl records had to be either destroyed or hidden or come back for a bootleg sales somewhere else. Hmm. Um, hmm. They had to repress and make a whole new record.
1: What else I think is really interesting about this musically is, you know, we're talking about leaving the the blemishes in and things like that. I mean you have Julian trying to hit an ah. And he goes, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that at all. And you just don't hear that in records. You don't almost hear singers talking to themselves about trying to hit a note, but right, fine, we'll go past it, you know. And from what you're saying, you were so calculating, I think, in these sessions, that was probably a deliberate thing to leave, to leave in. But as uh, a listener, yeah. you know,
3: you don't... I, w- I will claim a little bit of credit for that. You see, he never... No one in the band ever expected that to stay in. Those were just little jokes. He, those were jokes, he was doing mm-hmm. as he was warming his voice up ready to start the song he was excited he was making strange sounds and breathing and just making strange remarks or whatever and then the band kind of noticed that you know i pretty much edit things out and I, I i pretty much clean up things that shouldn't be there but as the weeks went on they were all kind of noticing that those damn remarks were staying in there and At a certain point, like right during the final mixing, they say, okay, now get rid of that shit, please. (laughs) I said, hey guys, uh, I like that. I just like that there. And they said, no, come on, come on, you're joking. I said, no, no, please just try. I actually somehow talked them into letting those stay. Mm. It was nothing they had in mind. It was something that I just thought had a flow to it and had a, I don't know, it was a little bit of attitude. It was un- personality it gave the record personality when right. you
1: leave that sort of stuff in
3: oh so, so i just wanted it there and they humored
2: me
1: hmm. let me kind of come to the close of the record you know you've got trying your luck which i feel like almost sets up take it or leave it you know trying your has got the kind of metal sounding guitar solo and then take it or leave it's almost like the flip of is this It" at the start it's finishing with a flourish whereas is this it is easing you in this is Take it or leave it. We're going to throw everything, almost all the best bits of of everything else we have put in other songs, the the solos, the vocal delivery, and we're going to, we're going to end you with something that something memorable at the end of an album. We're not going to end with a whimper. We're going out with a with a bang here, like yeah, that. Yeah. That must have been the feeling in the studio when
3: you were recording that track, right? Well, I remember the feeling in the studio with uh, Take It or Leave It. That was for my for me, even before the vocals got on there. When they were playing that song and when Albert did his guitar solo, I was just, my jaw was hanging open. I was like, this is the shit. This is what we can do. And it seemed to be that the walls of the studio were participating in the tone. There was something that was happening and the whole, the, the walls felt like they were breathing or like straining under the weight of that intensity. And Yeah. And finally, when he sang it, you know, he sang it absolutely as energetically and powerfully as the track itself was. And for me, for a long time, that was my favorite track on the album from the moment they recorded it. And for years afterwards, because it was just so intense, it's so in your face and unkind, but so beautiful and so well Mm. thought out. And the song before it, Trying Your Luck, I think now now looking back. At a certain point, that became like one of my favorite songs on the album because it's so intelligent and so insensitively constructed with the rhythms. It's really an unusual statement. It's a real one of a kind piece of music.
1: And it's a one of a kind album. And obviously, you know, you, that, that kind of takes us through all the tracks. And then you, know, you complete your work on the record. Mm-hmm. There's that intense pressure to deliver. I mean, it delivers. I think that's the thing. You know, it, certainly in the UK, I, I wasn't writing for the enemy by this point. I kind of came a year later, but I was, you know, I was in training. I guess you could say to be an a an enemy writer, and the, you could feel the the weight of anticipation on that record. And when it comes out, it gets 10 out of 10 in Enemy, which they very rarely ever gave out. I never wrote a review of a 10 out of 10 album. I think Arctic Monkeys got a 10 out of 10 once. I think Radiohead did, but it was only reserved for that very top layer. Of, of of kind of bands and you know huge festival slots they were I mean they were everywhere there's the, you know the meet me in the bathroom book as much as it's about New York a lot of that is just how the Strokes completely turned around a whole city and put all the attention on on New York you know launched the career of the AAS not that they you know they were the aaas already existed but just wearing a pin badge on Saturday Night Live right and then yeah. everyone in the UK says who are the aaas you then become kind of a thing sort of of their own so what are your memories of the the kind of period after the album was released and the craziness i guess that came you moved to the uk obviously
3: so yeah i mean i already knew ahead of time that the uk was the place to be you know like they like the band i'm working with i'm a musician and i'm a producer i want to be where i have the chance to meet people and kind of connect with the music industry so i came over i think the day that the album came out or the day the first single was released and then I wound up moving to London, I don't know, maybe six months after the record came out and everything was kicking off over he- over in the UK. Um, Interpol were coming by, Yeah Yeah, yeah Yeahs were coming by, tons of New York bands were happening and the British rock and roll scene was jumping up and there were bands left and right here for me to record. It, it was great, you know. And one of those bands obviously was the
1: Libertines where, you know, if you know your libertines history and we've we've talked about on the show quite a lot because we've got various sort of connections around that band and they didn't sound anything like the strokes i think even before or after but something about the strokes changed their attitude you know they were a much more beatlesy kind of outfit before the strokes came out that's when the leather jackets came out that's when the punky attitude i think kind of came through and i understand you nearly worked with the band that they actually wanted you to work with them and rough trade kind of stopped that
3: I don't know. I mean, first of all, I didn't know it was Rough Trade. I don't know who stopped it. And I did work with the band. I toured on their very first UK tour with them, and I ran their live sound. Okay. I was anticipating that I was going to produce their first uh, records. They had asked me to do that. And as you said, um, it just didn't work out. I don't know why. I don't know what the decisions were there. But there was a moment where I was in their camp and I was working with them and then there's a moment that they they told me they weren't going to work with me so Mm -hmm. uh, the beginning of a strange saga of the libertines
1: I I mean yeah (laughs) if you know your libertines history I mean people come in and out of that that orbit all the time you know you weren't the first or the last that would come in for a bit and then you know strings would be pulled and things would happen and then you know you next thing you're out and it was the same for everyone I think you kind of orbited that
3: planet you know i would like it to be said that when i first met the libertines in person and heard their music in their practice room i thought they were one of the most brilliant bands i'd ever heard and i was so excited about their music you know when they were before their records had come out just at that magic moment when they'd signed to rough trade and they did that cherry jam show i don't know if you were there but they did this one incendiary show where it was the first time they played on stage in the current lineup and Mm. everybody from all the labels and all the big british rockers were in that room and they totally lived up to all to it all you know they totally showed what the next sound was going to be and then
1: a couple of years later um the bat phone is picked up again by the strokes they've been working on the second album with nigel godrich everyone knows for his work with radiohead and again it's not quite working out how they, you know, they were big fans of Radiohead, I think, Strokes and what I've read and they liked. But it's very different to the sound that they had. And in a way, it's maybe not hard to see how that didn't figure out. So, again, you know, the the bat phone is picked up. Yeah, We need you in again yeah. um, for the second time. This is the second time you've had this scenario. So, what, again, what was your reaction to that?
3: Well, I was a little sad. I was a lot sad that I wasn't asked to do it. I wasn't asked to do the album. And so... You know, I was just getting on. I was living in London at the time. I was working with lots of British bands. I was having a good time. Loved it. Um, But then, yeah, when they called me back to work on Room on Fire album, it was another like head twisting moment of like, "Are you kidding again?" This, you know, coming back to me again. It -hmm. was crazy and great. And I guess you know
1: the, there's a cliche in the music industry of difficult second album right you know that bands yeah. have a lifetime to make a first album and then about two if they're lucky to make their to make their second so you know how how did you approach um producing that you know it's almost impossible i think it's almost impossible to follow something like is this it you know yeah. and whatever you do you're probably going to disappoint someone right mm-hmm. i mean hopefully not the band and hopefully not yourself but you know, how, how did you feel those sessions went and what, what did you make of the kind of the end product?
3: Again, I never had in my mind that, oh, we have to top, is this it? Or, oh, it's going to be hard. Or, oh, and all those things you said were not on my mind. It was like, mm. are you kidding? The Strokes have been touring for two years straight, never taking a break. And I get to work with them again. And the first record was so successful that that's going to happen again. I just thought more of the same. And then when they came and played me the new songs, I'm going like, whoa, this little band from the basement, after two years of playing night after night after night after night, they have improved. Mm. You know, their skill level is just gone through the roof. So for me as a musician, I was going like, this is going to be even better. I mean, everything has just gone up. The songwriting has gone up. The singing has gone up. The playing has gone up. This is awesome. So I started mm. that record with like really excited like incredible excitement just based on the music and the state of the band when i got them because i've almost
1: got this theory that if is this it hadn't happened and that was their first album there would have been the same level of excitement hearing i mean obviously it was it was a development of their sound but -hmm. because it was the strokes it was almost like well that's now expected a record of that quality is expected
3: yeah and and nothing (laughs) less I figured that out after the record came out and we saw the reaction to it. I realized that I've already had that experience. There are there certain bands that come out and they have this new sound and you're blown away and it's just like a, a revelation. And then when they come out with their second album, it has every bit of a chance to be just as good, if not better, but you don't have that extra hit of the first time you're exposed to that vibration you know it's like yeah i know this sound so half of the surprise and half of the impact of that psychological surprise is not available just because you've heard the idea before
2: Mm.
1: meet me in the bathroom for me should be considered one of one of the classics one of those not the strokes classics but indie classics overall but again because it's it's, you know, it, it's 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 kind of measured against things like Last Night and Hard to Explain, mm-hmm. that it doesn't maybe quite get the attention that it's deserved over the last, whatever it is, 18, 17, 18 years, you know?
3: Yeah, I don't know. At the first, everybody was saying, Is This It? Is The Masterpiece? And then I've heard a lot of people, um, reconsideration or musicians that have grown up, that, when they were children, they heard that, and now they're like adult musicians, and they go like, you know, I can actually hear that the band is playing better and this is more demanding and trickier and more innovative so it does get quite a lot of love room on fire but it will Mm. never have that hype that the first album had coming out of nowhere on that level around the world right Mm. then i
1: think the last record i understand you worked on with the band was first impressions of earth but you didn't kind of finish the sessions there that that's where Again, it was almost in reverse. You started the sessions but didn't finish them. Whereas in the past, you'd been the one that had come in and the bat phone had been picked up and you'd you'd shown up. So kind of what what happened there?
3: Um, Well, let's see. What happened was that they asked me to, I was living in London, as I said, and they asked me to come over and help them build a studio in their practice room. So that was my first job. I built a studio while they were touring. And then they came in and they said, you know what? We don't have any songs. So we want you to stay in New York and whenever we want you, we'll call you and you come help us record the demos. And then when the demos are done, we'll make the album. And so this was very different than me hanging out, doing my thing, working on my music for a year and then working for a few months with them to make an album. Suddenly we were working for most of a year just on the demos. And it was a little bit of a, I don't know, it wasn't my favorite kind of process. I wish they had made those demos on their own and then I could record the album. Mm. So whatever, by the time they wanted to make the album, they were thinking that maybe they should try a slightly different sound. And uh, they met a producer that they thought would help them achieve that. Is that David,
1: David Kahn? Is that how you,
0: yeah.
1: That's his name, yes. And I read that he'd he'd done stuff like Paul McCartney and kind of artists like that. Again, different worlds to The Strokes.
3: Yeah, we heard Paul McCartney's voice coming through his phone one day. And for me, I was like, whoa. Mm. Yeah, very impressive career that man has. Very good musician, very talented guy, but 180 degrees different kind of a producer than me.
1: And how was that transition kind of handled in terms of him coming in and you and you kind of
3: exiting the project? Well, at first they wanted me to stay with him. So that's why I have some credits on that album. For the beginning of the album, I was there. But I have to admit that for me, I felt like I was given a very strong backseat role. I had just recorded the demos and already at the beginning of the producing that album, like I was there um, kind of not because I wanted to be just because they asked me to be while someone else was kind of at the starship, uh, command unit, shall we say. Mm. And eventually it got to the point where they felt confident that he was the one and he was making the sounds they liked. And they asked me around the beginning of the year, 2005, if it would be okay if, uh, they just worked with him and, and is that all right? And I said like, well, it's your music. Um, I wouldn't want to work with somebody I didn't want to work with. So of course it's all right. And I'll just like kind of slowly exit stage left and let you guys carry on with your work. Mm.
1: But obviously you exited stage left, but you uh, you then went on to work with a, a number of other bands. You know, you've got yeah. production credits kind of uh, all over the kind of indie map, you know, if, if, if indie rock is kind of, uh, you know, particularly British, quite a lot of British indie rock and other New York bands. So I wanted to kind of throw, some of those at you and just see what your memories were of working with them particularly some of the artists I don't think many of our listeners may have heard of you know so you like should, Kil-
3: you should mention skin though because she was the first person that I worked with and you know that was just landing totally on my feet like she is so amazing her vocals are just so insanely good and that was a real joy because it was the opposite of a stroke session. It was very free and easy going and mm. everybody was smiling and it just, I don't know, it just clicked instantly. So that was the very first one I did after Is This It? So that skin of Skunk and Nancy, right? Right.
1: Like, I mean, right. one of the most striking musicians, British musicians are probably like the last
3: 10, 20, 30 years, you know? And you can imagine how happy I was to be in a studio with uh, a singer of that quality. Absolutely, yeah. So so which material of hers did you did you work on? We worked on, I guess, what was called her second solo album. It was mm. called Big Chemical State, and uh, she was working with her own band. It wasn't Skunk and Nancy, and, but it was just a joy hanging out with her and working with her.
1: And just such a different style of music, I guess, to The Strokes, right? So it meant that you... I don't know. Was it more challenging because you were you were used to working with a band like The Stroke to then go and do something totally different, or is that kind of no, how it worked? How it is as a producer? It was. It was
3: the opposite. It was just completely effortless. Set up some microphones, and the band is happy. They play the music. They're happy. They love the way it sounds put a microphone in front of the singer. She sings one time and she loves it. She sings a harmony, a double, another harmony, another harmony, all perfectly the first time, smiling all the way. It's not like Mm. an existential crisis and a concern that takes five (laughs) people scratching their chins and pulling their hair to make every decision, which was like partly working the strokes was like, everybody puzzling about each part, (laughs) sweating blood. But that's what also makes their music... So
1: brilliant. But I guess Skin had had that, she'd have put, what, probably 10, 15 years in the music industry by that point, maybe 10 years. So she was probably yep. more seasoned and maybe yeah. knew herself a little bit better, right?
3: Very probably. I never thought of that. I just know that it was just a breath of fresh air to go in the studio with her and her band and have it go so smoothly.
1: And you also worked on another New York artist, um, I guess New York via Russia, in, in Regina Spector's Soviet Kitsch, which... Yeah is an absolute cult classic from that era. You know, again, I, I, that's one of the sounds of me. I was at university at the time, mm-hmm. came out a couple of years after the Strokes album, and it felt kind of connected in, in some way because they were, part, they were both from New York, but musically quite different. So right. yeah, can you talk us through your work on that?
3: Meeting Regina Spector and having the opportunity to work with her on her music was probably one of the greatest highlights of my musical life. You know, from the moment she played a piano and sang a song for me, I was completely smitten. Like this is the greatest music and this young person can play piano so good and her lyrics are so crazy. What a perfect uh, record for Gordon Raphael to make. This is a Mm. match. For me, it was a match made in heaven. You know, I loved working on that. And I actually recorded half of it in New York and half of it in London. Okay, and what what was the reason for the for the kind of switch between the two then? Because I was living in London and I was working with tons of bands, so I knew some really good studios, and also some good musicians. Mm. Example: Did you know that Kill Kaneda plays on Regina Spectre's album? No, I didn't know that, but I was
1: definitely going to bring that band up with yeah,
3: you. No, but I mean, there's a, how strange is that? Yeah. Um, a rock band I've recorded in England. I play it for Regina in New York. And she goes, I want them on my record. I go, okay, I'll make that mm-hmm. happen. Right. So it was just the fact that I was coming over to New York for Christmas. So we worked in New York for a while. And then I wanted to go home to London. And she didn't know if she wanted to make an album or an EP. And eventually she said, I want to make more songs. I said, great, come on over and we'll do the rest here. That's mm-hmm. how it that's how it became two
1: cities. You talked there about Canadian. yeah? They they were a band, you know. I don't think really got the credit over here that they they should have done. They were like a British kind of Fugazi at the drive-in, punk kids from like a random place in Sussex. So, how did you? How, where did you first hear them? How did you come onto them? They were from the uh, si- the place
3: called Bognor Regis.
1: That's, that's it, yeah. The the but- it. it's a seaside, yeah, like a. There's a famous Butlins there. It's known for Butlins holidays and, you know, traditional British seaside, right?
3: Right. I met their manager and I recorded another band that he managed and he thought I did an OK job with them. So he said, I've got another group for you. Let's bring Kill Kanada over. And the moment I heard them, it was like, oh, another perfect band. Like, couldn't be better for me. Absolutely wild as the jungle like completely crazy and so powerful and they were really young just guitar bass and drums one of the loudest bands i've ever worked with and yeah we made many many songs i think we did maybe 14 or 15 songs together over the over a six month or a year period one of my favorites.
1: Zane Lowe was a big champion of them on uh, on Radio 1 at the time. I, I can still hear him in my head kind of shouting their name on his showing. Here's Kill Canada And then there's just noise exploding kind of through the radio, you know.
3: Right. I got to actually meet Zane Lowe early, whatever that year that was. Like, let's say 2003 or four. I met him early in his radio career. I think that was pretty early for him. Hmm. He was like, he was into me. He was very nice with me. And he said, what's going on? I said, come check out Kill Kaneda. And he came to the show and he just loved them and he really helped them. He played their music on his shows. And as you said, he championed them. And then another band that, again, I don't think our listeners may remember is
1: the Moonies from, uh, from Liverpool. Um, so, yeah, can you, can, you, can you sort of describe them to, to our listeners? Because I, I loved some of their stuff. I remember, I'm sure I caught them live a couple of times when I was around Manchester and Liverpool back in the day.
3: Right. As far as I remember, um, I believe it was I worked with Ian Brown for a moment in New York before I was ever known, before I did anything. It's an accident. I had one session with him and I believe his manager might have managed the Moonies and he got me involved with them. And um, we recorded something in London and uh, they're a very cool band, very young, super young. And Liverpool, is that right? I think they're from Liverpool, yeah. yeah. Absolutely.
1: Very cool band. And you mentioned there you worked with Ian Brown as well, yeah. You, you know, it was fair,
3: fairly brief, but
1: which, which record was that? Was that for? He, was, he, I mean?
3: was, he was doing a demo for a, a record that he made with 808 State. Could have been a single, even. Mm-hmm. He, just, he just looked for the closest recording studio to where he lived, and it just happened to be ours at the time. And he didn't even tell me his name. He just walked in, said, "Okay, I got this song I want to sing," and I recognized his voice. I said, hmm. "Ian Brown." He didn't even tell me <laughs> he was Ian Brown. I just like heard it. And, yeah. Uh, so I actually accidentally recorded Ian Brown, and he was very gracious and hmm. very professional, and it was a really
1: cool day. Because I-, I didn't realize he'd worked on anything with 808 State. Obviously, 808 State did Pacific State like that kind yeah. of classic Manchester come down come down dance tune I guess you could call it
3: right i believe i looked for it one time and it's there is a 808 state ian brown collaboration out there somewhere
1: mm. i have to I have to dig that out and i guess that you know time is going to get the better of us tonight and i could i could chat to you about the strokes in your work all night but i kind of want to bring it back to the now like okay. have you worked who have you worked with recently are there any bands that you would recommend to our listeners that they may not have heard heard now but you know you want to kind of shine a light on them because you you're usually ahead of the curve right Well, I don't know.
3: Um, I work work with a lot of young bands, you know, and in places like Argentina and Texas and California. And so I'm trying to think. Um, I heard a really nice um, electronic music, kind of guitar and electronic, a band from my area called Soft Focus. Okay. I, I thought they were very good and um let's see the band lounge society from my town here very good band i think i think those are two of my favorites from more recent
1: times so i guess what we'll do for listeners we'll try and find some of their tracks online and then we'll put the uh the links in the description to have a have a listen and yeah gordon's usually uh 18 months ahead of everyone else's taste so uh yeah probably well well worth a listen and checking them
3: out and also, maybe I'll I'll review my recent uh, productions and I'll send you some links to some other bands if you want to see some other things I've done recently. There are some good ones.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this podcast is all about hitting rewind on bands, but we're still both absolutely obsessed with, with new music. And I guess the, the place to end for me would be, you know, twice now, the back phone has been picked up by The Strokes when they've needed someone to to either come in and and take the helm of an album that someone else has started or, uh, you know, to to record their demos. So if if they picked up the phone again and said, we'd love you to come back in the studio and work on our next record, I know they've not been as prolific in recent years in terms of recording albums, but if they did, like, what would would your response be? Are you still in touch with them even at the moment?
3: Yeah, I saw them when they came to play in London before the pandemic. I think it was about February, the day after Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah, it was about, yeah. Something around that time. And I saw them uh, about a week before in Berlin they played there so I got a chance to hang out with them and say hello to everybody and yeah there's a very warm feeling between us and of course if they wanted me to work with them at any point I would definitely do it. And I suppose you must be a different dynamic now that you've not
1: worked with them for so long that you know you're I guess when you meet them now it's not under the the pressure of delivering a project, right? So it must mean there's a different dynamic there when, when that happens.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, there's been a different dynamic for a very long time because I haven't worked with them since 2005. But there is, when we look at each other, we know that something happened to both of our lives from the working together. You know, they went on to do what they did and I got the chance to, you know, have a completely different career and life path once I worked with them. So there's just this recognition. And as I like to say in the music industry, I think it was 20 years ago since I worked on Is This It? And there hasn't been any lawsuits. Uh, hmm. <laughs> that, that shows how warm and close we are. <laughs> I mean,
1: that is a rare thing, isn't it? Particularly yeah. partic- you know, between bands and between the people they've worked with. Yeah, you can think down the years of, of where those fallouts have happened. But yeah, that's probably a really nice place to close, uh, Gordon, and thanks so much for your time and taking us back through that that classic record. And yeah, tantalizing there that maybe one day, We might be hearing your work with The Strokes again. Hope so. Cool, thanks a lot, Gordon. We'll speak again soon. Thanks for having me.
0: One of the things that really struck me on that was how nice he sounds. (laughs) And there were a few times where you asked him how he felt and he said sad. You know what, I was sitting there listening to it and almost almost kind of not crying but it really pulled on my heartstrings because I thought if I was in that situation I would have been angry (laughs) my my reaction would have been anger probably a little bit of sadness as well but definitely anger um Mm. and sort Mm. of resentment I guess because there were you know multiple times where I guess not getting the recognition that he deserved it, it kind of felt like that a bit in 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 some parts but um I, I felt like that, you know. Just, he just seems like a really nice guy, and does it for the love of the music, rather than, you know, the bit about co- the contract and not signing the contract. And when he was just like, you know, I didn't think about, I don't even think about it when when a band walks in. That's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about making a good, you know, record for them, and that's that's amazing. Like, I, I don't think there's many people around like that either in the music industry. So, what a, what a guy.
1: I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Sarah. He's he's just a really nice guy. I think he's really ego free there's not an ego there and sometimes i think i always find that surprising when you meet say a music producer and i've met a few kind of down the years writing for me where you think you know you're the manager of the football team right you know you're the captain of the ship and you've got to kind of wrangle these uh these definitely egotistical rock stars usually into producing an album but you know, maybe that's the skill of it—the the fact they've got very little ego themselves, and they're focused only on the uh, on the kind of end product is what drives that. And you're right, yeah, it was a bit sad to hear about you know the points where you know he made the modern A.G.P. and then he probably expected to get the gig of the debut album, and they went with someone else who couldn't do it, and then they brought him in, and then it happened again with the second album where they brought Nigel Godrich in, you know, who's like a really well-known producer for his work with Radiohead, and. Again, it wasn't quite sounding right, and they picked up what I was calling in the interview the uh, the bat phone and and got Gordon in, and I think he's been such a of architect of their sound. You know, I think I said in the in one of my questions that you know sometimes with bands the way that it's produced and the sound and, and it's almost like it's a separate instrument. It's like an instrument that adds to the sound of it. Because if you can imagine, if the Strokes were recorded in a real kind of uh what i would use the word i use kind of identikit kind of pro tools sounding like everyone else sort of way yeah the songs are great but what made it so timeless i think was was that production so I think you're right yeah he gave us a real insight not just into the songs but also how he felt um during the making of, of the of those records something else i should probably say at this point as well sarah is we i did put him on the spot a little bit about new music he was listening to at the end and he, he didn't really give too much away but he got back in touch afterwards didn't he and sent sent us an email with some new bands to check out
0: he did yeah um so we gave us four bands to listen to uh, or four artists i guess um one was called billy conker another one animals on tv uh, they're both from texas uh, in the, in the us in the states uh, darlings uh, from leeds and then there's also stefko um from vienna and actually interesting like you know when you look at the video for stefko cuz he's put a youtube link for us um you can sort of tell that she is uh well by the video sorry that it's it's definitely not from america or england (laughs) and i say that in in the nicest possible way it's just a bit quirky and kooky you'll see what i mean when when you go into it but um i guess my favorite out of these the four was uh the the animals on tv band yeah i listened to one of their songs called dead people sounds like a great great track right um and as soon as it started i was like oh you know this sounds a bit kind of reminds me a bit of Semisonic. sonic remember semi-sonic he did secret smile which is a great song mm. back in the day mm. um and it, this song kind of made me and so the lyrics are a bit kooky again um and then it kind of built up and there was this like crazy guitar solo random guitar solo in it a bit kind of like queen like and then it kind of goes back down to to semi-sonic vibes again i thought that song was actually excellent i really enjoyed it how, how about you
1: Yeah, I I enjoyed that as well, because it's a song that almost has kind of four different parts to it and sort of different styles. And uh, Billy Conker I liked as well, kind of that kind of classic garage rock sound. And obviously he's got kind of a basis in that with uh, the Strokes. I'm not saying they sound like the Strokes, but you can kind of draw the comparisons and darlings from being from Leeds. You know, we did an episode about Leeds a a few weeks ago, didn't we? And the kind of. scene back in the day there and that was more kind of electro-y sort of rock and I enjoyed that and would like to know a little bit more about them so I guess what we could do Sarah why don't we put the links to these bands in the description of the episode and it'd be great to hear what uh listeners think and yeah you know these are obviously the the bands that Gordon's working with at the moment so we'd love to know what uh listeners make of these
0: absolutely and on that just if you want to get in touch with us you can do at demotapespod at gmail.com uh, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Demotapes Pod, uh, and we've got our own personal Instagram and Twitters as well. It's at I am Sarah Jane Kemp on Instagram and at I'm Sarah Jane Kemp on Twitter. And Rick, what are you? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so I'm Rick underscore J underscore Martin. on Twitter, don't bother me on Instagram because I barely put any images up. But um, yeah, we would love people to get in touch with us. We mentioned a couple of episodes ago about you know there's plenty of podcasts out there at the moment covering the kind of noughties guitar scene and we love that scene but we're trying to expand our horizons a little bit aren't we and do different scenes whether that's going back into the 90s the 80s if I could find a great artist from the 50s who had a good story to tell I'd get them on so it'd be really great to hear from listeners you know are there any lost bands out there that people think we should be talking about not just the big names not just you know see if we can get Paul McCartney on the phone right but are there any kind of criminally overlooked bands or scenes or cities with music scenes that we've never heard about you know we'd love to kind of build more of kind of a community around this podcast and that that starts with you guys getting in touch and telling us what you think
0: absolutely well the time has come it's dinner time I have to get food in there somehow Rick (laughs) sorry (laughs) Um, yeah I've, I've got to talk about food at some point on this podcast every episode uh but yeah it's been a really good episode I've really enjoyed uh kind of listening to your interview and the research that you did around the stroke so thank you for that Rick and um I'm looking forward to the next one
1: Absolutely. And what what am I going to do? I'm going to go off and listen to Is This It all the way through all over again because I am bloody obsessed again at the moment. But yeah, I guess that's all we've got time for on this episode. So all that's left to say is take care of yourselves and we'll see you on the next episode.
0: Bye.